Hey there, here and now, anytime listener. If you like this show, we'd love it if you followed us or subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. Also, I know you hear this a lot, but if you can leave a rating or review while you're at it, we would really appreciate it. It just takes a second and it helps us a lot. Of course, you can also tell your friends to subscribe. That helps too. And thanks. Now here's the show. We need to be proud of who we are, that part of who we are, not the totality of who we are, is that we have one or more different types of disabilities. Remembering Judy Human, the mother of the disability rights movement. Monday, March 6th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, the government of Ethiopia and the Tigray People's Liberation Front signed a peace treaty in November, but we're still learning about atrocities committed in that war, including one that happened just days before the treaty was signed. And a new book follows Indian workers who were lured to Mississippi to repair American oil rigs after Hurricane Katrina, and then held in servitude by their employers. But first, when Judy Human was born in 1947, people with disabilities were not guaranteed equal opportunity under the law. That's no longer the case, thanks to legislation like the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and thanks, in no small part, to the activism of Judy Human. Human died Saturday, after a lifetime at the vanguard of an often overlooked movement for civil rights. She led protests and lobbied Congress to pass laws protecting people with disabilities, culminating in the ADA in 1990. But she also changed the perception of what it means to live with a disability. Here's what she told C-SPAN last year. I think that's really a significant outcome of the ADA, that we ourselves see ourselves as being a part of society. Rebecca Coakley is trying to continue that work as a U.S. disability rights program officer with the Ford Foundation. She knew Human, and she spoke with Deepa Fernandez about Human's legacy. So disability rights have come so far over the course of Judy's lifetime, even though there's still so much more work to do. But what did the world look like that Judy was born into? How was she not included? I think Judy's story of exclusion and segregation really starts with her her origin. I mean, as a as a young child with polio, she was denied the right to go to kindergarten with her peers because her teachers believed that her wheelchair would be a fire hazard. And her parents fought for her individually to be able to go to school. Yet Judy herself became an activist. She could have easily tried to make things better just for herself, but she saw herself as part of a diverse community. What propelled her into disability rights activism? You know, I think for Judy, you can't separate the fact that her parents were survivors of the Holocaust from her own personal advocacy and really raised her with the idea that people with disabilities deserve to be included, deserved to be at the table. And you know, it, it led to her desiring actually to become a kindergarten teacher and then being denied. And I think in, in true disability fashion, years later, she was appointed by President Clinton to serve as the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services. So she was put in charge of education for kids just like her. And just to be clear, not only was she denied the right 
originally to attend kindergarten as a five-year-old herself. Later, when she wanted to be a kindergarten teacher in college, she was also given a similar reason for not being able to go to college, right? Absolutely. People with disabilities were seen as uneducatable. And Judy and her colleagues in the, you know, in the 1970s really fundamentally paved the path for all of us that came after and saying college is not only should not only be a goal for you, but college and career is a right. And she wrote her own story, and, and folks should definitely read that. She had a podcast. She she was really out in the world. One of her concerns that I know she talked to you a lot about was that younger disabled people today are not as involved with the disability community or the movement because they're part of what's known as the ADA generation. They've grown up having this act that has made them a little more included. It's something you've been working trying to change as well. Why was it important for Judy and and for you, for young Americans to be part of the work in, in calling out ableism? This was something that was very important to Judy. And I mean, given her activism in California, where she helped start the State Youth Leadership Forum for Young Leaders with Disabilities, and then moving to Washington was actually the last thing that she did in the Clinton administration was fund a national leadership program for young people with disabilities. She was always cognizant that we had to leave the door open for those coming behind us and and pave a path to make things more equitable. And I think coming out of youth activism herself, it really reminded her that no movement survives without the, the labor and the passion of its young people and that the disability rights community, like every other civil rights community, has to really cultivate that and develop that among our youth. I wonder if you can tell us what you learned from Judy about how to fight for the world that you want to see for your own children. It's funny that you mentioned that. I met Judy when I was six years old, and I met her on the back of my godmother's wheelchair riding through Berkeley to a mm. disability rally. And my children grew up knowing Judy as basically their their D.C. Jewish grandma Mm. and watching my children look at her and have the understanding that every day that they go to school, it was because Auntie Judy and her friends fought to make that happen. It it has trained them and, and really planted a seed that when they see intolerance, when they see discrimination, even as as children in elementary and middle school, that not only should they say something, they have a responsibility to say something. Remembering the civil rights leader, Judy Human, who passed away this weekend in Washington, D.C., is Rebecca Coakley, herself a disability rights activist and the U.S. Disability Rights Program Officer with the Ford Foundation. Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing your memories. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, a new investigation has revealed that government forces massacred rebels in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, even as the two sides were just about to reach a peace deal. Jane Clayson gets the latest after the break.
An investigation by our editorial partners at The Washington Post has found evidence of a massacre perpetuated by Eritrean troops in the neighboring Tigray region of Ethiopia. Soldiers killed more than 300 men, women, boys and girls across several villages. And evidence shows it happened just days before a peace deal put an end to the two-year conflict in the region. Catherine Harold is the Washington Post correspondent who led this investigation, and she joins me now from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Catherine, welcome to the program. Hi there. More than 300 people in several villages were killed. Tell us why Eritrean forces perpetuated these horrific attacks on civilians. Well, very unfortunately, this has been very common in this war. Eritrean troops are accused of a number of mass killings of civilians. I think one team has documented around 300 sites. They've also been accused of using rape as a weapon of war. So this is not an isolated incident. We documented killings in around 10 villages of around 300 people. And villagers there told us it seemed to be retribution for battlefield losses, that there had been fierce fighting in the area a couple days before, and that the Eritrean troops had lost a lot of soldiers. We can't verify that independently, but it certainly fits a pattern in this conflict. Well, the violence is stunning, as you report it. Mothers killed alongside their small children, their babies, elderly priests shot in their homes. What did witnesses tell you about what happened? I think the most heartbreaking moments for me, and there wasn't enough space to put them all in the story, is the moments that people were taken away from their families and led to their deaths. We had one family telling us about their 10-year-old son that clung to his father as he was being taken away. Another man holding his 4-year-old and 6-year-old when they came for him and just kissed them and said, go inside, I'll be back, knowing that he was going to die. A mother who was wearing a baby on her back and the soldiers told her to untie it and put it down on the ground before killing her in front of her sons. The last thing she said to them was, go to your cousin's house. She was thinking of their safety. She knew that she was going to die. You say these killings were retribution for battlefield losses. Give us some context on the fighting in the Tigray region leading up to this attack. What had been happening there? So there's been one of the deadliest wars in the world for the last two years. And the most recent round of fighting started in August. Ethiopian government troops and their allies were pressing forward into Tigray. They had taken the major town of Shira and were advancing along one of the main roads to the capital, Mekele. And this massacre happened in the context of that fighting, where there had been heavy losses on all sides. And these attacks happened in early November. Why has it taken so many months for details of this story to emerge? So much of the region has been without phone communications. Patches were restored in December. Eritrean troops were still present in this area. They only left at the end of January, and people were too frightened to speak to me until they had left. The village itself still doesn't have a phone connection, so I had to find a way to reach the villagers and persuade them to come somewhere where I could talk to them. So all those things take a long time. I think we're going to see a lot more incidents like this emerging, unfortunately, if we have, you know, a full investigation. And villagers, you say, were frightened to speak with you. They were worried about retaliation or retribution. Absolutely. And um, people are still afraid. They have seen their families killed in front of them for the past few years. And this has not just been in Tigray, but people in Afar and Amhara. The atrocities that have happened have not yet been um, fully investigated. Mm. So everybody is waiting to see what's going to happen, whether there will be investigations, whether there will be justice. 
the UN International Commission of Human Rights experts say it has documented war crimes here. What have Eritrean, Ethiopian, and Tigrayan officials said about your reporting, the attacks that have happened? Have they acknowledged it? I don't think that there is dispute that great crimes have been committed. I was at an event today with the Ethiopian justice minister who is exploring policy options for transitional justice. I would like to hear more from victims on what they think the process should be. Right now, a lot of people are still lacking even basic security, food, access to medical services. A lot of schools and hospitals were destroyed and haven't been replaced. There's still not full access to distribute food to starving people in the region. So I think people do want justice because they have lost so much over the past few years. There are very few people that I've spoken to that haven't lost a relative or several relatives. And your reporting continues. What is happening in these villages now? It seems to be relatively peaceful, but we don't know about all the areas. Not everywhere has phone access right now. Some parts of Tigray are still under Eritrean control. Aid workers are still not able to access parts of the region. So I think... Until we have full access to Tigray, until investigators and journalists and Ethiopian citizens have got full access to all of Tigray, I don't think anyone will really know how bad it is. That's the Washington Post Catherine Harold in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. We'll link to her reporting at hereandnow.org. Catherine, thank you so much for your work. We really appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Coming up, Deepa speaks with a man who helped trafficked workers from India escape servitude on oil rigs. That's after the break. In 2006, Sarkat Soni was a labor organizer working in New Orleans when he received a phone call from a stranger in Mississippi desperate for help. The caller was an Indian migrant worker who had been lured to the U.S. by a company called Signal International to repair oil rigs damaged by Hurricane Katrina. In a meeting at a local church and in gatherings afterwards, Sarkat learned that there were hundreds of men living in what Signal called man camps under appalling conditions. They believed they were working towards green cards, but in reality, the men were temporary workers who Signal could send home at any time. Eventually, Sarkat helped the men escape and led them on a march to Washington, D.C. to publicize their plight and help them stay in the U.S. But all along the way, they were shadowed by agents of ICE and continually being discredited by Signal. Sarkat Soni writes about their journey in his new book, The Great Escape, and he joins us now. Welcome, Sarkat. Great to be here. So, Sarkat, I met you in the years after Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana, where you were organizing and I was reporting. You introduced me to Peruvian migrant workers brought in to do the rebuilding and to African-Americans displaced by the storm. And I distinctly remember you telling me your suspicions about Indian workers who were stuck in these indentured type camps. And I remember thinking this couldn't possibly be true. Yes, well, I remember that. And um, I think we met in New Orleans right around the time that I started getting 
these mysterious midnight phone calls from men who insisted on remaining anonymous but told me that they had been brought from India to rebuild somewhere in Mississippi. I went on a hunt for them and found them. It turned out that my mysterious callers were just a few among 500 men. And they were basically locked into these camps and only allowed out on the company bus. Describe the conditions they lived in. They were working round-the-clock shifts behind barbed wire fences, living 24 to a trailer and eating nothing more than frozen rice. The recruiters charged them $20,000 apiece for green cards, but there were never any green cards. The small, narrow window of freedom they were given was on Sundays they were allowed to go to church. Now, there were Hindus and Muslims among the workers, um, and even they would go to church just to enjoy a small measure of freedom. When I got to that church for a clandestine meeting with three men, I was reaching for the doorknob, rehearsing my speech, opened the door, got ready to give the speech, and there were a hundred men and hundreds more where they came from. You know, some people might wonder, like, $20,000 for a green card. You know, these workers came from very humble families of, of little wealth. How were they able to get such a sum of money? You're absolutely right. $20,000 represents generations of savings. These were people who sometimes earned a dollar a day, sometimes $5 a day. But the way they were able to afford it was they sold ancestral land, they put their homes on hock, they sold jewelry and all of their assets, and then on top of that, took high-interest loans, 17 to 20% interest loans, often from violent moneylenders who started circling their families once mm. the men left to the United States. You came to believe pretty early on that th these men were victims of trafficking, and that ends up winding its way through the book because that's how they might get to stay in the United States, not the that's green right. cards they were promised. How do you make the case that they were victims of trafficking and not simply kind of defrauded, like scammed out of $20,000? Yeah, you know, we made the case that this was not just garden variety labor abuse or even awful conditions. This was actually forced labor and human trafficking. But it wasn't the kind of trafficking that U.S. officials and adjudicators are used to. These were skilled workers, all men, and they weren't confined in the basement of a restaurant the way many trafficked workers are. These were men who fell captive principally because of the loans they took and the incredible debt they undertook to pay the recruiters $20,000. Mm. They now were in a, a relationship of servitude with Signal International, with this company. Mm. They were not free to leave, not because they were trapped by a lock and key, but because their debts kept them, even past the point that their visas expired, even when they were undocumented, kept them at work and inside Signal's labor camps. You know, to get to the point where you could prove this, you had to convince workers that they had to take direct action. And and I think for me, what I read in this story is not just the power of community organizing, but how challenging it is. 
talk to me about not just trying to win relief for one man or two men, but using them as a group. Yeah, at the heart of the book and at the heart of the campaign to free these men was a deep and very unlikely friendship I forged with one of these workers. This was Rajan, who was deep in that crowd of 100 people. He reached out to me secretly afterwards, and we partnered to bring the men out of the labor camp and put them on a freedom march. And it started in the unlikeliest way. It started with Indian spices. Um, What Rajan (laughs) knew was that the way these men had been made to feel so deeply less than human was that the company denied them food. They were eating this frozen rice. That's all they ever ate. And Rajan had me smuggle in Indian spices. And he commandeered the cafeteria in the labor camp. And he cooked these men an Indian meal to revive them and produce some hope. And then we hatched a plot that's out of a heist movie for the escape. Without giving too much away, it involved bribing the security guards. And we concocted a fictitious Indian wedding as a pretext to ferry these men out to New Orleans and onto the road to Washington. So, Sarkat, you were up against a powerful company, Signal International, and you ended up learning that Signal used all its political influence to try and have the workers deported, discredited... What did you learn in the process of this campaign about who the immigration system is set up to favor? Deep inside the federal government, there were corrupt agents who had helped Signal International carry out the trafficking scheme. These very same immigration agents then fought to appoint themselves as the investigators of the human trafficking once we filed our Department of Justice complaint. When this revelation came to light, it's ultimately what forced lawmakers in Washington to push the Justice Department to move forward with their investigation and give protections Mm. to the workers. I want to jump to what was my favorite part of the book, and it really ties to what you were just saying about the Indian spices. It was towards the end where you are finally able to eat this incredible Carolyn fish curry that one of the workers' wives has made and he's told you about for years. This is really a personal story. I wonder, do you still stay in touch with the workers? Oh, yes. The protagonists of the book have all become close friends. I traveled India with one of the workers in the book late last year. Another worker called me just last week and told me, Saketji, which is how the workers refer to me, our struggle is over. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we finally won our campaign. And I said, well, I I thought we won that back, you know, in 2010. He said, no, no, I just won my personal campaign just last week because my daughter just got into five medical schools. And so I'm, I'm still part of the men's lives. They're still deeply part of mine. And, you know, all of their dreams are coming true for their children, which is why they did what they did. You know, I went to your book reading, Sarkat, and there was a really interesting part where you talked about, you know, now as as the founder and director of an organization called Resilience Force, which advocates for the workforce that rebuilds after climate disasters, 
you talked about how the very workers who are coming in as the United States experiences more and more frequent climate disasters where floods or fires and people's homes need to be rebuilt, in some cases, the houses that they're rebuilding, those owners, the very people who may be anti-immigrant, who may be the ones wanting to stop immigrants from coming. And you told a powerful story about one family in Ron DeSantis's Florida. I wonder if you can end by telling us that story. Yeah, you know, there's one family in Florida who had put up a sign on their door after a hurricane blew off its roof. The sign said, strangers will be shot. Well, I showed up to their doorstep with a set of strangers, immigrant strangers, workers with hammers and nails, and we rebuilt that roof. And afterwards... We had dinner with the family, Honduran immigrants, Guatemalan immigrants. We supplied interpreters. We exchanged stories. And at the end of the night, that family took that sign down. And I think they're grateful for the strangers who came and helped. I think that gratitude and the friendships that form are the basis for building a really new social cohesion in America. Sakat Sani's book is The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. Sakit, thank you so much. Thank you. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. You can find more stories at hereandnow.org. Today, we hear from the author of a new report that predicts more animal-to-human virus transmission and more pandemics as a result of deforestation. There's this concept that they have of edge, which is when you're cutting a forest in little patchy ways, so imagine Swiss cheese, you're taking out a lot of different holes, or you're cutting a lot of road street. You're creating a lot of boundaries and edge areas where humans and wildlife are more likely to be able to meet. Head to hereandnow.org to hear that whole conversation. Today's stories were produced by Ashley Locke, Thomas Daniellian, and Emiko Tamagawa. Todd Munt and Gabe Bullard edited today's show. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Patrick O'Connor. Theme music by me, Mike, and Max Liebman. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.